The death of Jesus is unique. Notice here that none of the so-called savior gods died for someone else. They were often overtaken and killed by somebody against their will. Now notice what Galatians 1, 3 and 4 says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of of our God and Father. Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that helps you lead your family in defending the Christian message. It's the Think Pod 12 Days of Christmas, 12 current cultural challenges answered with timeless biblical truth by me and some of my friends. For more content like this, be sure to follow all our guest hosts and join the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and Signal. So, Merry Christmas from the Think Institute and happy 2022. Hey everybody, welcome to the 10th day of 12 Days of Christmas hosted by the Think Podcast uh, out of the Think Institute run by Joel Sedekase. My name is Dean Meadows. I am part of the Daily Apologist and I'm the host of the Daily Apologist podcast and I am so glad that you're here with me today. Some of you might even be saying, hey, that guy looks really familiar. And if that is what you're thinking, well, then you would be correct. Not too long ago, uh, Joel and I sat down and we had a discussion about which apologetics method is better, evidentialism or presuppositionalism. I greatly enjoyed my time with Joel then. And I, I know that I'm going to have a great time talking about this particular topic today. And the question is, did the Bible uh, come about as a result of pagan mythology? Now, just as a uh, preamble to our discussion today, I have to admit, there is absolutely positively no way that I'm going to be able to cover everything about the Bible and and answer the question, well, is this a result of pagan mythology? So, what I'm going to do for the time that I have is I'm going to focus on the central claim of Christianity, and that is the resurrection. We're going to ask the question, is the resurrection a result of pagan mythology? So, thank you for being here. Let's go ahead and dive in to our topic today. And before we start discussing the arguments for and against, um, you know, the story of the resurrection being a part of pagan mythology, we really need to pare down what do we even mean when we talk about uh pagan mythology? What are the markers of pagan mythology? What are the markers of um, some of these other mystery religions? Well, there's not a lot uh, when it comes to the mystery religions because of the vow of secrecy that they were required to take upon initiation. And so the beliefs, the practices varied from place to place and from time to time. But there are essentially three markers of these types of religions. And the first would be secret ceremonies. Each mystery religion or each uh, mythical religion uh, used a set of secret ceremonies um, often connected with the initiation of a new member. And every uh, religion imparted some type of secret, uh, unattainable 
uh, knowledge to anybody else outside of the group. Think of the Gnostics in the first century. Second, the mystery and mythical religions of the Near East and of the Mediterranean really focused on this. They had this cyclical view uh, of history. Central to these religions was the use of the annual vegetation cycle in which uh, life was renewed each spring and died off in the fall. And so it, it's no small thing to say uh, that the people that were involved in these religions had a very deep, significant connection to the natural process of growth, of death, decay, and rebirth. And that will be very significant as we start talking about the differences between these religions and Christianity, most notably the difference between these religions and the resurrection. And so these types of religions had uh, a circular uh, view of history. And then marker number three was the minimalization of doctrine. Once again, this is going to be very uh, significant when we start talking about the differences between these religions and Christianity. These cults, these religions were primarily concerned with two things, uh, emotion and experience. So doctrine was minimized uh, and these uh, religious practices were often um, marked by uh, blazing lights, dancing and chanting, uh, and orgies um, in order to appeal to sense experience. And so, as they participated in these things, they had these uh, euphoric uh, sense experiences, and so they believed that they were also um, in union with God by partaking in these acts. And so one might ask the question, uh, well, how is that different than Christianity? And, you know, that's really a, a great question. And I usually give three answers. And the first answer is public proclamation. Uh, sure. There are some, what we would call insider rituals, insider rights, uh, that are given like, um, uh, like, uh, like the Lord's supper, things like uh, communal prayer, uh, things like that. But uh, the basic claims of Christianity were definitely made public. Think about Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 and 24. Uh, Peter stands up and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you uh, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst. So Peter is saying, hey, these things that Jesus did, they weren't private over here in the corner. They were among all of you. Uh, and as Peter says, as you yourself know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And he says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So notice the claims that Peter's making, that what Jesus did was in public, and you guys killed him also in a public fashion. Everything about the central Christian claim uh, with regards to Jesus and who he was and what he did was made public. It wasn't private. 
Number two is that Christianity is a historically based religion. The resurrection is a historical claim. And really, when we start to see where we start to see the difference between these mythical religions and Christianity is that none of these other so-called resurrected gods from these religions are actually uh, historical people. And so Jesus is depicted in the Bible and by other secular sources as a real person uh, of history. Notice Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says there, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, and uh, his brother Philip was a tetrarch in the region of Iturea, and Tronconitis and Licinius were tetrarchs of Abilene and the high and uh, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, this is a historical claim. This is what we have here. We see also uh, Paul in his earliest writings mentions. Uh, Jesus. Uh, he mentions and relays a early first century creed about his resurrection to the Corinthians. And so the question we have to ask is, well, what's the best basis uh, for the origin of that creed? And so uh, that's something that you and I need to ask our, sep- our skeptical friends about. Even John Dominic Crossan, uh, who uh, is a by, by no means a conservative evangelical says essentially that that the death of Jesus uh, is one of the most attested historical facts. Uh, it's he says it's as historical as anything can be. Now uh, the key here is that if Jesus died and that's an attested historical fact, then that means Jesus was an actual person. Uh, of history. So, the claims of Christianity, the existence of Jesus, are historical claims, whereas these other gods from these mythical religions and these mystery religions uh, don't even uh, exist in, in history. Uh, point number three would be that doctrine matters in Christianity. Uh, correct teachings and belief matter uh, for the community of uh, believers in uh Titus chapter 1-9, it says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And, and what about this one? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it says, Therefore the time will come when people uh, will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and aside to myths. So Paul, writing to Timothy in Second Timothy, is making a huge point about what? About doctrine. Doctrine has always mattered in Christianity, whereas in these uh, mystery and mythical religions, they are not as significant. So, 
what do we see here? You know, just in the basic order of operations uh, between these mystery and mythical religions and Christianity, there's a distinct difference between these two. Now, the skeptic might say something like, well, just because they're different in order of operations doesn't mean that these uh, mystery and mythical pagan religions uh, or cults didn't influence the story of Christianity. And so, once again, uh, this is a, a decent objection. And on the surface, it seems like it's a really good counter argument. But I think there are at least five reasons why this particular objection fails. Number one is that Christianity has Jewish roots. So unlike the Gentiles in the first century, uh, the Jews refused to blend their religion with other religions. So these mystery, these mythical religions were inclusive, but Judaism and Christianity were exclusive. Now, Jews were, um, you know, just in general, um, intensely, intensely resistant to the pagan ideas uh, at the time. Now, you might ask the question, where does this stem from? Well, think back to the time of the Old Testament. What do we see as the biggest problem for the Jewish people? Well, of course, it's idolatry. Uh, They will acquire whatever religious practice they can get their hands on, essentially. And what happens is that God puts them in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Now, coming out of that captivity, they've learned their lesson about idolatry, but as often takes place in history, the pendulum swings all the way to the other side. Now, in the first century, as we read about the Jewish interactions amongst their own people, amongst Samaritans who were half Jewish, half Gentile, and amongst the Gentiles, the Jews are completely off-put by them and want nothing to do with them. They are um, exclusive uh, to a fault because it produces this self-righteousness which blinds them to who the Messiah uh, actually is. Um, maybe an, an example from antiquity would be Antiquity of the Jews by Josephus in which he gives an account of the Jews who stood up to Pilate's troops and when they um, uh, were essentially told either change or we're going to kill you. Uh, they were threatened with death. Uh, Josephus records that they uh, bared their necks to the Roman swords and Pilate's people back down. That's how serious the Jews were about that. And so why does that matter? Well, that matters because the first people who are converted in the New Testament are Jews in Acts chapter 2 Uh, The reason that Peter stands up and says men of Israel is because everybody in the crowd is a Jew. And so uh, it's highly unlikely that the first century Christians having coming out, coming out of that Jewish background would have just adopted pagan mythologies in order to formulate their thoughts about who Christ was and what he did. And that even would go to uh, the new Testament authors, um, even, even Paul. I mean, Paul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So the first reason why 
uh, this objection about Christianity copying from pagans doesn't work is because Christianity has roots uh, in Judaism, has its roots in Judaism. Number two, uh, the parallels are weak. And in a great resource um, called uh, the Jesus Legend, Paul Rhodes Eddy and Gregory Boyd say that while there are certain parallel terms used in early Christianity and these mystery religions, there is little evidence for parallel concepts. So, what do we even mean by that? So, let's take an example. An example would be, say, something like um, resurrection. Uh, the skeptic will say, well, Jesus rose from the dead and he was resurrected, but, but you know, so was Osiris and so was Addis. Well, they might use those terms, but but they really don't convey the same thing. So, for instance, in the story of Osiris, his brother, uh, after he tricks Osiris into entering a casket, is then sunk to the bottom of the sea. Now, Isis, Osiris's sister wife, discovers the body and revives him by magic. Then his brother found this out and then chopped him up into 14 pieces and scattered him, uh, you know, uh, widely, you know, everywhere, essentially. And so Isis, the sister wife of Osiris, finds 13 of the 14 pieces and reconstructs Osiris and brings him back to life. Well, that's not a resurrection. It actually takes his place as the master of the underworld. Uh, and so that looks nothing like what we see uh, in the Gospels. That's not even uh, a resurrection. Or, or what about Addis? Uh, we see here in the legend of Addis, uh, the mother goddess uh, Sybil loves Addis, but here's a problem. And this is what often takes place in these types of religions. Addis was unfaithful to his goddess lover and in a maddening jealous rage uh sybil makes him insane and in his insanity um if you're squeamish you might want to hit pause right here in his insanity he castrates himself and he flees into the forest uh where he bled to death now, where's the resurrection in this? Well, uh, Sybil, being overwhelmed by grief, returns Addis, quote, back to life. And what does this mean? Well, this means that uh, Addis's body continues to grow hair and his little finger moves. Yeah, that looks a lot like what we have in the gospel accounts and in the New Testament. So, the parallels are weak. And reason number three is that, you know, really parallels don't prove anything. Okay, so for instance, what if I told you about a British ship that was about 800 feet long, weighed over 60,000 tons, and could carry about, let's say... 3,000 passengers. Uh, and this ship had a top speed of 24 knots, had three propellers, 20 lifeboats. lifeboats. And then what if I told you um, that this ocean liner was deemed unsinkable? It was the biggest ship that was ever made. But that this uh, ship hit an iceberg on its maiden voyage in the month of April, 
tearing an opening in the starboard side forward portion of the ship and sinking with it about 2,000 passengers. Let me ask you a question. What in the world am I talking about? Now, most of you probably said, ah, well, of course, that's the Titanic. Well, you'd be wrong. It's the ship called the Titan, uh, and that's a fictional ship described by Morgan Robertson's 1898 book called The Wreck of the Titan or Futility. Now, riddle me this, Batman. It was written 14 years before the disaster of the Titanic took place and several years even before the construction uh, even begun on the Titanic. So... Who copied who here? Did did the people who are reporting about the sinking of the Titanic take things from the wreck of the Titan? Well, of course not. But the parallels are there. Or, Or what about this one? What if I told you there was once a president who served in Congress who was elected uh, if I told you there was once a president who was uh, a member of Congress, then he was elected president, and then he had a vice president named Johnson, and that he was assassinated uh, during the first term of his presidency. Who am I talking about? Well, some of you are probably guessing Abraham Lincoln, and some of you are probably guessing John F. Kennedy, and you'd both be right. But notice, just because Lincoln's assassination has similar things uh, uh, referenced uh, that are similar to JFK's assassination, it doesn't mean that the reporters who were talking about JFK's assassination borrowed anything from the Lincoln assassination. So, what do, what do I what am I trying to get at here? Well, while there may be similarities in terminology, the skeptic has to show with uh, which precise mythologies these writers borrowed from and display the evidence that they knew of these mythologies in order to copy them. But as one of my good friends once stated, if you try hard enough, anything can be a parallel of something. So reason number three that this doesn't work this objection doesn't work is because the parallels prove nothing. Reason number four that the, the the central claim of Christianity about the resurrection is not borrowed from pagan mythology is because the dating is actually backwards. So what, what we often hear is that, well, they copied from all of these ancient Near East religions of these dying and rising gods. But once again... Uh, what we see is that virtually all of their evidence for these religions comes from the 2nd to 4th century, and that's in the Jesus legend by Paul Rhodes Eddy and Greg Boyd. Bruce Metzger says, even when parallels are genealogical, it must not be uncritically assumed that the mysteries always influence Christianity, for it is not only possible, but probable that in certain cases the influence moved in the opposite direction. So what's Metzger uh, getting at? Metzger saying uh, just because there are these similarities between the mystery religions, these pagan religions, and Christianity, one shouldn't just assume that the pagan religions influence the influence Christianity. It it actually is the exact opposite. And what Eddie and Boyd say is that well. 
uh, that would be hard to do because notice the dating. Uh, the evidence for these religions don't even come until the second uh, to the fourth century. Well, Christianity is a first century religion. So how could something from the second and the fourth century uh, influence uh, the writing and the beliefs of a religion of a religion that originates in the first century? And that's essentially their point. The answer is it can't. Um, and so, uh, T.N.D. Mettinger, a senior uh, Swedish scholar, wrote in The Riddle of the Resurrection in 2001 that there is near universal consensus that there was no dying and rising gods that predate Christianity. And this is what he specifically says. There is, as far as I am aware, no prima facie evidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a mythological construct drawing on the myths and rites of the dying and rising gods of the surrounding world. While studied with profit against the background of Jewish resurrection belief, the faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus retains its unique character in in the history of religions. The riddle still remains. So, reason number four, they've got the dating backwards. And reason number five, uh, the death of Jesus is unique. Um, notice here that none of the so-called savior gods died uh, for someone else. They were often overtaken and killed by somebody um, against their will. Now, notice what Galatians 1, chapter, uh, Galatians 1, 3, and 4 says. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And that's one point that the death is unique in that Jesus willingly gave himself up, whereas all these other, the, the majority of these other dying and rising gods, they're overtaken, they're killed against their will. Uh, also, while others might die to save the world, Jesus dies uh, for the sins of the world. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For what I received I pass on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures, or according to the Scriptures. See, it wasn't just uh, the saving of the world physically. Jesus died so that you and I might be reconciled to God spiritually for just at the right time while we were still weak while we were still enemies christ died for us that's how we know that god has poured out his love as romans chapter 5 says uh and christ died once for all uh there there is um no partiality shown in the death of Jesus. The mystery gods, uh, as we mentioned before, were vegetative uh, deities who repeated uh, whose repeated death depicts the annual cycle of nature. Well, we don't see that with Jesus. Uh, Jesus isn't dying because uh, it's time for the harvest or, you know, it's fall, right? Hebrews 7, 27 says, unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for on his uh, for his own sins, uh, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed. He sa- he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is not a regional uh, savior. He is a worldwide savior. He is for all people, for all times, in all places. Uh, 
Another point is that Jesus' death was actually an event in history, both recorded by Josephus, recorded in the earliest writings of Paul, recorded in the Gospels, and is uh, essentially a unanimous uh, uh, a unanimous um, uh, understanding amongst scholars. It's the consensus view. I wouldn't say it's nearly unanimous. It's a consensus view. And and really, um, there are not too many people in the scholarly uh, arena that would think that Jesus didn't die uh, by crucifixion at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And then Jesus died voluntarily. As mentioned before, Osiris, Adonis, Addis, they're overtaken. Jesus lays his life down um, willingly. Uh, and you you see this consistently throughout the Gospels. You see this consistently throughout uh, the New Testament. And when they describe Jesus' death, it is willingly, it's not done uh, by force. And so those are five reasons why this idea that Christianity, namely the main claim of Christianity, that Jesus rose from the dead, is not based upon pagan myths. And so I hope that in our time together that you have um, uh, learned just some very simple practical reasons and ways to counter this type of objection. And I hope that if you are watching and you have struggled with this objection, that, that this is just kind of the the tip of the iceberg for you when it comes to these things. So I want to just offer up um, some, some resources that you can look at to help. Number one would be evidence that demands a verdict, the updated edition by Dr. Sean McDowell and his uh, father, Josh McDowell. And then the Jesus legend uh, by Paul Rhodes, Eddie uh, and Gregory Boyd. And then the gospel and the Greeks by Ronald Nash. Those are three great introductory resources uh, that I think every single Christian should absolutely positively have in their library to read, to study and to know. So, uh, in conclusion, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for the uh, 12 Days of Christmas for the Think Pod by the Think Institute. Great idea, Joel said a case. I've had a blast doing this. And once again, my name is Dean Meadows. I'm the host of the Daily Apologist podcast with the Daily Apologist. You can catch our stuff at thedailyapologist.com. You can catch us also on our YouTube channel, The Daily Apologist. And we're also on all social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at, you guessed it, The Daily Apologist. Thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day and God bless. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. Mm-hmm.